Jonah chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning as we continue in our series through this short but incredibly applicable book, the book of Jonah. That hymn that you were just introduced to is the, it's the new hymn for the seminary from which I came to you from. I went to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and I don't know if it's, it's appropriate to say this, but we institutions, particularly seminaries, often have a hymn. And so every commencement, every graduation, we sang the seminary hymn. And I, I have to confess to you, it was the most dreadful piece of hymnody that I had ever sung in my life. And at a staff meeting in 2009, 2010, I finally mustered up the courage to say after a commencement that I had just attended, that is the most dreadful hymn that I have ever heard in my life. Why? Do we have this hymn? It, it doesn't make any sense. It brags about us and not about Jesus, and I'm, I, I just can't even sing it. And so that began a process by God's grace of them finally scrapping the hymn. Uh, you may have heard of Keith and Kristen Geddes. They are, are modern hymn writers. They combine sort of folk and traditional and modern and they, all into this neat mix, and they, they've written some amazing hymns. They also wrote In Christ Alone, but they recently wrote this hymn, and it is the hymn of my alma mater, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. They unveil, unveiled it this summer. And you may, have, you may have heard in that hymn, God's creation, every nation through the Son, that God purposes to bring his salvation through Jesus all around the world. And I, I want to be an all-around-the-world kind of church. I want to not be a bunch of Jonas who don't want to go to our enemies. I want to be a bunch of Jonas who finally get over it and... and delight to go to our enemies and maybe even write a book that tells on ourselves how there used to be a season of our life where we didn't want to go, but now we want to go. And we want to be a part of God's getting us to those people who don't yet know him. And so part of the reason I'm preaching from Jonah is because it ties in very much so to my heart for you as a people, for my heart for us as a church, that we would be a going and a sending people, that we would go to the hard places we go to the places that the rest of the world writes off because we believe that we serve a supernatural God who sent his son for those people and that he would delight to save them and to show us his saving work in a way that might confound the skeptics. I always like it when the skeptics are wrong and the skeptics don't believe in Christ the Son. They don't believe that he really can change or transform a people group or a heart or an apartment complex but I believe that God is still in the business of doing that because if he can save this hard-hearted sinner, he can save anybody. That was, that was not intended to be the introduction, but it was. I hope you're in Jonah chapter 2 by now. Amen. Jonah chapter 2. Hear now the word. Actually, I'm sorry, verse 17 of chapter 1 into chapter 2. Verse 17 of chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Let me stop there for just a moment. Do you understand what happened? Jonah was drowning in the sea, and a fish came appointed by God to rescue him from his drowning. And he prayed while he was drowning, 
And now that he's in the fish, he writes a psalm of a prayer of praise to God for the deliverance that God has already given him by putting him in the fish. We often think about the fish as the instrument of God's death, but it's actually the instrument of God's salvation. You've got to, somebody has to be in a tomb for three days for salvation to be possible. Interesting, is it not? Verse 2 of chapter 2. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Jonah got what he wanted. Remember last week, he wanted to get away from the face of the Lord. I've been expelled from your sight. Verse 4, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray you would help us to see Jesus in this text. That you would help us to see our deep need for your salvation. God, there's some in this room who've not yet been saved. They've been around the things of the gospel. They've, they've heard of your great love and your great grace, but they're still swimming in a sea of death that's caused by sin. May today be the day of salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We concluded last week in verse 16 of chapter 1 with formerly pagan sailors giving praise to the one true God. Jonah tries to get away from God's mission, and so God uses even his rebellion to bring his salvation to pagan sailors who sacrifice to their God. But Jonah in chapter 2 is still on his way down. You remember last week he went down to Joppa, down to the boat, in the lowest part of the boat where he laid down, and in verse 5 we find that he's all the way down to the lowest parts of the sea. Jonah's trajectory until verse 6 of chapter 2 is down, 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 down. He's headed down. Why? Because he's rebelled against God's commission to go to his fiercest enemies, the people of Assyria and the capital city of Nineveh. Now, some of you this morning are a lot like Jonah. If you were honest, if we could, if we could x-ray your heart and what's going on in your heart and your mind and your soul this morning if we could see what God is doing on the inside you know this morning you walk through those doors this morning living inside of a self-imposed crisis God's been trying to get your attention for some time and you know that you're here this morning and you need to make a decision now for some of you, you can make that decision where you're seated. You can make that decision by praying even right now. But some of you this morning may very well need to have a moment in time where you come forward and you pray with a pastor or you get on your knees, even on a hard gym floor, and you cry out to God and say, God, I'm tired of the storm. 
I'm tired of being in the sea of death that's caused by sin, and I need you and you alone to be my Savior, and I want to commit the rest of my life to be enlisted in your service, no matter where you call me, no matter how you purpose to use me, even if you send me to a people like Nineveh. In verse 17, we learn how Jonah will eventually emerge from the depths of the sea, from the valley of the shadow of death, from Sheol, he calls it in verse 2 of chapter 2. Sheol here doesn't mean hell, it means the abode of the dead, the place where dead people go. And he goes to Sheol and he is rescued by God's appointed fish. Some of you this morning think it's fantastic, too fantastical, too amazing that God would appoint a fish to swallow up his prophet and he'd be in the belly of the fish three days and he'd emerge and he'd have life and go on mission to the nations. If you think that's too much to believe, then surely you can't believe that God left heaven, wrapped himself in a human body, went to a cross and was nailed to a cross for you, went into a tomb for three days, emerged where he was raised so that he might preach the gospel to the nations and save you. So if you can't believe that God appointed a fish, how then can you believe in Christ the Messiah? It doesn't make sense. We serve a supernatural God. He can intervene in time and space. He can speak the world into existence. He can do anything that he wants to do. The very fact that you're here this morning, that our world is spinning, and that we can breathe is a miracle. It's amazing. Google this afternoon, if you're bored and your football team is losing, the fine-tuning argument of the universe. If you take the axis of our earth and tilt it in any direction just a little bit, then we would all cease to exist. That's just one variable. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of variables about our earth that suggest that somebody made this place. And the guy and the God who made this place can take a fish if he wants to, swallow his prophet, and spit him out on the dry land three days later. You say, why not just throw over Jonah overboard into the sea and then miraculously transport him to Nineveh? Why a fish? Well, God still hasn't gotten Jonah's heart yet. And oftentimes, God's solutions to your storm in, include some education, a little learning curve so that you don't run right back to doing the same thing you did and presume upon the grace of God you understand how deeply God loves you and how much he had to give in order to save you. But secondly, God will use a story about a sinful, reluctant prophet to show us what we should expect in Jesus, his sinless son. More on that next week. So God appoints a great fish to swallow up his greatly rebellious prophet who's running from God's great commission to his great city. As John Salehammer writes, from inside the fish, we hear Jonah's rejoicing and praise to God for having been rescued by God. This psalm clearly shows us that Jonah sees the great fish as an instrument of God's salvation. But Jonah, at the time that he's in the sea, is swimming in a sea of death. So the question for us is how can we be rescued from our rebellion? How can we be rescued from the death that our sin brings? I believe we see three things in Jonah chapter 2. First, to be rescued by God, we must understand our sin is idolatry leading to death. 
Secondly, we must look to God and cry for help. And thirdly, we must trust in the Lord who is salvation. First, to be rescued by God, we've got to come to the understanding that our sin is idolatry. All of our sin emerges from an idolatrous heart that wants to ascribe more worth to something other than God than God himself. And all idolatry ultimately leads to death. In verse 8, we see this. Verse 8 of chapter 2, Jonah shows us that all of our sin begins in idolatry, in empty vanities. It's the same word used in Ecclesiastes, vanities of vanities. We want to we attach our lives to things that are always slipping away, time and money and kids and sexual relationships and everything that falls woefully short of the glory of God. And we spend our whole lives trying to attach our lives to things that are always like sand running through our hands. Adam and Eve wanted the tree more than they wanted God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the nations want to worship creation rather than the God who made it. Now, you may not have any gold statues in your home or your office or your car, but J.D. Greer reminds us that an idol is simply, simply something that you love more than God. He gives us a few questions to help us root out the idolatry and identify the idolatry in our hearts. What is it that you cannot live without? What are you envious of that others have that you don't? What do you stay up late at night worrying about losing? What are you bitter about not getting or having lost? What's the one thing that you say without that life isn't really worth living? Jonah was a prophet. He knew the book of Genesis. He knew all the right answers. He knew in the day that Adam and Eve sinned that they surely would die. And he knew, as Philip Carey says, that the Lord made human beings to live in his sight so that when they turn away from him, they turn inevitably to death. You cannot turn away from the face of God without turning right into the face of God. Death. Yes, Jonah knew about the deadness that comes with sin, but he had not yet felt it. He could write a theology textbook. He could get all the answers right, and yet he had not yet felt the deadness of his hard-hearted idolatry. But he begins to feel it quite rapidly when his body hits the water and he is in the deadness of the sea. Unfortunately for most of us, we must feel the deadness of our sin before we run to the life-giving God. And praise God, we serve a God who will allow us to feel the desperation and deadness of our sin so that we might enter into His salvation. Do you see who's causing this here? Jonah caused it by his rebellion, but he says, you cast me in the sea. You threw me in the deep. Like Jonah, God will place you in the depth of Sheol, verse 2. He will cast you in the deep, verse 3. He will thrust you into the heart of the seas, verse 3, to get your attention that you might run to his salvation. You see, at first, sin brings a sense of alienation from God. Jonah tells us in verse 4, I have been expelled before your eyes or from your sight. 
But it isn't long after we feel alienated from the sight of God that we begin to suffocate under the weight of our sin. It's not only that we don't sense God's presence, we begin to sense the weightiness and the gravity and the the oxygen-sucking nature of sin in our being. Alienation from God's presence leads to suffocation under the weighty consequences of our sin. We see this so clearly in Jonah chapter 2. Look at, the, look at the verbs in Jonah chapter 2. The current or the river literally engulfed me. Quoting from Psalm 42.7, Jonah says, Your breakers and your billows passed over me. Does anybody in here know how to body surf? I love body surfing. Turn your body into like an arrow. Catch that wave just right and you can ride it all the way into the shore. And it's, it's awesome. And most people, most people are jealous when you know how to do it because they're out there on their boogie board and they can't go as far as you can just body surf it. If you really know how to catch a wave, it's, it's amazing. It's one of the most exhilarating feelings, experiences that you have, I guess, this side of heaven. Um, so when I was five years old, I was already a pretty good swimmer and my father was teaching me how to body surf and I was, I was jealous of my dad. He's out there, whoosh, I'm like, how do you do that? So he's got me on the baby waves and they aren't enough to really work. So he carries me further out and, and he launches. He says, you just got to do Superman or at the right time. And it's, it's right before that thing fulcrums. And if you catch it, the wave will actually throw you up to the top and then launch you out like a slingshot. I caught one just dead perfect. The wave was massive and everything was good until... It slammed me into the bottom of the sea. And, and you remember at Myrtle Beach, there's, there, we weren't at North Myrtle where there aren't a bunch of shells. We were right there where there's a ton of shells and grit and rocks and all that stuff. And I didn't have, I needed swim shirts, but they didn't make swim shirts yet. So I, I came up, well, after my dad helped me. Uh, I'm at the bottom of the sea. I got sand in my ears, in my mouth. I got sand in my pants. I got shells embedded in my skin, literally. I mean, it was not pretty. And, and I'm down there, and a wave comes behind the wave. Right as I think I'm going to come up to the surface, the tide is continually coming in, and another wave comes over, and I can't get up. I'm, I'm without air. And I begin to feel myself at five years of age, one of the most sinking feelings you'll ever have. I begin to think... I'm done. I don't know how my dad found me, but at just that moment, my father's two hands came and ripped me out of the water. And I could breathe again. Jonah says, your breakers and your billows were passing over me, wave after wave. Water encompassed me, verse 5, literally up to my neck or unto my soul. Interestingly enough, this is a Hebrew expression for death. Jonah tells us that he, he died, that he went to Sheol, that he was, his breath was taken from him. So whether he was as good as dead or actually dead, Jonah sees himself as a dead man. The great deep engulfed, literally surrounded me. And then in verse 5, even the seaweed jumps into the game and the seaweed wraps around his head. Interestingly enough, the image there 
the word for wrapping around his head is the word for the same word for when the priests have the priestly turban wrapped around their head and they go into the holy of holies before a sinful people. Is it not interesting that three days later a prophet of God would emerge from a tomb who had had the reeds wrapped around his head and he would go proclaim God's salvation to a people who had not known him? Alexander summarizes Jonah's condition with these words. Jonah is a prisoner of the sea. But Jonah is worse than a prisoner. He's a dead man. You see, before Jonah is swallowed by the fish, he's swallowed up in the death of the sea where, verse 6, the earth with its bars was around me forever. Which begs this question this morning. Can you identify with Jonah? Are you suffering under the weight of your sin? You don't have to anymore. Some of you feel like you've been forgotten by God, like you're in the heart of the sea, that the flood has surrounded you, but you've not been forgotten by God. The broken heart that you're facing, the financial frustrations, the lost job, the failing health, may very well be appointed by God to bring you back from the brink of the deadness of sin. As J.D. Greer has said, God's not paying you back for your sin. He's bringing you back from your sin. God is relentless in his pursuit of those he loves. And he will even let you experience the suffocating weight of your sin so that you might finally know the liberating joy of his salvation. If you're sinking in sin's deadness this morning, take heart. There's something better than a fish on the way. Christ the Messiah has come to bear your burden of iniquity. He took it to Calvary. And if you will look to Christ in His holy temple, He stands ready to deliver and to save and to heal and to restore, which is our second point, to be rescued by God. You can't just stay down in the deadness of death. We've got to look to God and cry for help. In the depths of the sea, you have two options. You can become more determined to find your own way out, or you can reach a divinely initiated point of distress. Look what Jonah does in verse 2. I called out of my distress. Jonah finally starts to give up on Jonah being able to save Jonah. This morning, I want to speak to those who are in the sea of God's chastening. He's been showing you there's no hope apart from him. There's no hope in rebelling against his plan. And Satan wants you to play the game of comparisons. Well, I may be in a vast ocean of certain death, but I don't have seaweed wrapped around my head yet, so I'm still okay. I'll just keep kicking and doing my own thing and fighting my own battle. I don't need to look to God. But you see, the sinner who is sinking into the deadness of sin can never be brought out of the deadness of sin until he realizes that only God can bring him out. There's only one way out, and it's Jesus, the Messiah. Stop your striving. Stop your kicking. Stop your excuses. Stop your games and run to Jesus who alone can save. This is what Jonah does when he cries out of his distress. Verse 2. And then he cries out for help from the depth of Sheol. Again, verse 2. And he looks unto the God in his holy temple, literally to the temple of God's holiness. You might think the distance between Sheol and God in the heavenlies is unbridgeable. 
That God could never hear me. I'm too far gone for God to rescue me from my death. I'm too far gone for God to rescue me from what I've done. Pastor, you don't know what I did. You don't know who I've hurt. The relationships that I've severed and broken are too far gone to see God bring restoration. But God shows us that even in Sheol, He is accessible to us when we pray. We can move. When we move from self-righteousness determination, trying to get away from God and His will, to a distressed cry for God's help. God is there and He hears your prayer. How is this possible? How can God hear me after the mountain of sin and death that I deserve? David, in Psalm 139, 7-10, says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I even dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Though Jonah is suffocating in the sea, God hears the voice of his voiceless prayer. How is it that Jonah even has a voice when he's suffocating in the bottom of the sea? He doesn't. But aren't you glad that God, who is omniscient and omnipotent, even hears the voice of the prayers that you never voice? God heard his prayer. Jonah, conscious of drawing his last breath, remembers the Lord, verse 7, with confidence that his prayer enters into God's temple into his holy heavenly presence and that God heard his plea when we are distressed by death in which we abide God is still there will you cry out to God this morning from the depths of the deadness of your sin your stubbornness your selfishness Perhaps today is the day of your salvation. Perhaps today is the day to stop your striving and to cry out to God who will hear your prayer in the holy temple in the heavenlies. Are you ready to give up this morning? Some of you walked in this morning with a storm that's raging, a storm of rebellion, the death of the consequences of your sin. Will you give up and give it over to God this morning? That's the beginning of new life with Him. But finally, to be rescued by God, we must trust in the Lord who is salvation. In verse 6, Jonah's descent, his way down, makes a remarkable reversal. Indeed, some commentators believe we see a resurrection in verse 6. He's down, 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 all the way to the lowest parts of the sea. He's in Sheol. And yet God brings his life up from the pit. God's salvation requires a resurrection. Salvation for you this morning, no matter where you are, is not turning over a new leaf. It's not trying better, trying harder, doing more. It is that God substituted himself for you. That God the Son went before you and he took the death in your place, substituting his death for your death. And he was raised up on the third day and the Spirit's been poured out to give you true, divine, holy power for living the life that he says that he gives you in Christ. And when God raises you up, From the deadness of your sin, the Lord God of heaven and earth, verse 9 of chapter 1, becomes, O Lord my God, 
in verse 6 of chapter 2. Do you notice what's happened to Jonah the prophet? When he's on the boat and he's quizzed by the sailors, what's going on? Who's your God? Who are you? He gives this very clinical definition of who God is. Well, my God made the sea and the dry land and I fear him. He's, he's great. But there's no heart in it. But look at what happens in verse 6 when he's in the bottom of the sea and he's suffocated and he's dying and suddenly a fish comes and delivers him and raises him up to new life. Look what Jonah says. He calls him, you have saved my life out of the pit. Oh Lord my God. Salvation's personal. It's not abstract. God saves individuals. He saves families. He saves churches from their rebellion against his will and he enlists them in his mission. And when you really feel the gravity of a God who will go to the lowest parts of the sea to rip you out of the storm that you cause with your sin, you can't help but say, oh Lord, my God. When God truly delivers you from death, when he reaches down into the sea and brings you up to new life in Christ Jesus, it is impossible to be indifferent about it. Now, I'm not saying all of you've got to be as happy and as excited as your pastor or whoever the craziest Christian you know is, but I, I, I want to submit something to you. If, if you can be truly saved by God and go, eh, you didn't get what God gave you. God's given a salvation that is a life-altering, sin-crushing, death-defeating, life-raising salvation. And it's for you. We see the reality of the transformation of Jonah's life in verse 9. Jonah's been rescued by the fish, but he's still inside the fish. In other words, he's got to trust that God's going to complete the salvation that he started in him. And for some of you, that's where you are this morning. God sent the fish. He's raised you up to new life, but you're not in Nineveh yet. He's still got something more to do with you. And look what Jonah does. He expresses trust by changing the tense of his verb. He moves from the past tense to the future tense. And he says, God, when you get me out of this fish, because it doesn't smell so great, Look what he says he will do. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Jonah is confident that God has sent his fish as an agent of his salvation. And he goes on to declare, salvation belongs to the Lord. There's nothing Jonah did to get saved. There's nothing Jonah contributed to his salvation other than his sin and his rebellion. That's all he contributed. And then he looked to God who is salvation and God in a moment rescued him. There's three hallmarks of true salvation that we find in verse 9. Three hallmarks of real salvation. First, there's an eagerness to give to the God who rescued us. You say, well, pastor, why do you talk about giving all the time? Well, because Jesus does. He talks about generous giving more than heaven and hell combined. And you can't read a substantive passage of Scripture without once again encountering the question of sacrifice. A God who gave his all to us makes us like God, who is a giver. And one of the hallmarks of one who's been rescued by a God who gives life is that we start to act like God. And what is God? He's a giver. We become givers when we really get it. Once again, that's exhibited in the life of Jonah. But secondly, gratitude to the God who rescued us. Not, oh, I've got to give again. 
oh, here comes the offering again. Oh, I hate it when this time of the service comes around. That's not what Jonah says. He says he can't wait to get out of the fish and give and to give with a voice of thanksgiving. He's eager. One of the hallmarks of people who've really gotten it is you try to ask them questions about what they've done and where they've been, and they'll tell you a little bit, and then they whipsaw right back to bragging on Jesus. Well, enough about me. I got, let, let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. Let me tell you what God did here. The, the challenge is, if all you see is what you did and what you contributed, then you're not where Jonah was. You don't really have salvation yet. And then finally, a right perspective on who gets the credit for our rescue. Who saved Jonah? God did. Salvation is from the Lord. This is one of the most Uh, profound confessions about the doctrine of salvation in all of scripture it belongs to God it comes from God Yeshua salvation from the Lord Christ right Jesus Yeshua is Jesus which is salvation Christ is Lord salvation comes through the person of Christ alone salvation is indeed from the Lord and in Jonah chapter 2 he gives us a picture of how he saves Unless there is death to sin and resurrection to life, there is no salvation. We can't read Jonah chapter 2 without thinking of the truer and better Jonah. The one thrown to death for our sake by pagans wishing to be held innocent of his blood. The one God raised up after he descended into the lower parts of the earth, Ephesians 4.9. The one who emerged from the tomb on the third day and commissioned his church to go and make disciples of all nations and even our enemies. Some of you think all this talk about a fish who would save Jonah is crazy, but it's not crazy at all. Do you want to know what's crazy? God appointed something far more incredible than a great fish to save you. He appointed his great son. That's right. God appointed Christ the Messiah to leave heaven, wrap himself in humanity, and die for you to save you. And if you are sinking in sin's sea of death this morning, if your life is moving from crisis to crisis, if you're suffocating under sin's heavy weight, God has appointed something greater than a fish. He has appointed his only begotten son. In the early church, they often said, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Many of you are probably familiar with the word ichthus. That comes from the first letters in the Greek of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Ichthus is the word for fish in Greek. So the early church often as shorthand, talking about their worship and regard for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, would use the word ichthus. Why would the church do this? Do you suppose it's because Jesus is like God's appointed fish? That Jesus is the one who meets you at the bottom when it seems you've been swallowed up by a monstrous evil, even death itself? This indeed is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 
21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? This is what it means. It means because Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and because he died the death that we should have had to die and because he conquered the death that we could never conquer, you can come up for air this morning. If you look to the Lord in his holy temple and cry out of your distress. Will you give up your deadness to Christ and share in his life by faith? Are you ready to breathe in the life-giving presence of God? North Roanoke Baptist Church, at the end of your rope, at the bottom of your sea, there's one who's already been there for you. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit of God, I ask that you would work in this place. For those who are sinking even now, I pray that you would visit them with the courage to turn and look to your holy temple and find that the price for their sin has already been paid, that death has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. God, I I don't know the storms that are raging this morning, but you do. I don't know the paths and the the distance that will have to be traversed if you truly save someone to bring them back into right relationships with employers and people and who knows, even perhaps former spouses. But God, we we know that your work is that total, that it's that radical, that it takes us from the depths of the sea and delivers us onto dry land and, and enlists us in your mission. So God, I pray that you would give liberty this morning, freedom to respond as you're leading people to respond, people who want to partner with North Roanoke in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, that they would come and join. People who don't yet know Jesus, that in this moment, God, that you would be saving them and they would come and say, rejoice with me. I've just looked into the temple and cried for help and received the deliverance of God. Wherever people are, would you bring them to you? For the glory of Christ we ask it. Amen.